Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be back. Um, love the Cape, love crossing that bridge, and uh, just seeing this beautiful place that God has given us to enjoy as we live here. And I went out fishing the other night and caught a huge striper, so, you know, that's really good to be home for that reason. Uh, we're going to open up the Word of God to the book of Acts, and as Erica shared with you, we're getting into this series, The Core, so you can open up to Acts chapter 1. If you're not familiar with how to find Acts in the Bible, it is located in the New Testament, that's the back third of the Bible, and there are four Gospels that come before Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Now, I think if there's a, a word that summarizes our experience right now in this time, the word would be change. Everything's changing. Uh, I became aware of this. Me and my friend Doug Kyle went out, and we were just trying to find a breakfast place. And three restaurants later, we finally found a place that was open between 7 and 7.30, which, you know, you think breakfast, come on, be open at 7 o'clock at least. And uh, we didn't even get to sit inside the restaurant. We sat outside in the parking lot with our car doors open, looking at each other and eating sandwiches. I know that uh, many of our parents are experiencing the change of the new school year right now. And what a, what a disruption that is to have school uh, delayed for two weeks and then it's virtual for a couple of weeks and then you're meeting part-time in class and part-time online. It's just tough, especially in an environment when parents tend to both work right now. Change. It's happening everywhere. I can liken the experience, if you've ever had this before, culture shock is what you feel when so much change happens at all the same time. If you've ever traveled internationally, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That first week is novel and it is exciting. You love the, the freshness and the newness of a culture as you're exploring it. But week 10 now, that's a little different. Then all the simple, normal routines of life just feel hard. Language barriers, culture barriers, different ways of doing things. And you start saying to yourself, you know, this is kind of like stressful and overwhelming. I've even been thinking about the change that we've been experiencing as a church. I mean, if someone would have said to me a year ago, Rob, in a year from now, 30 to 40% of the church is going to be gathering on a Sunday morning. The other 60% or so is going to be online, and we're all going to be wearing masks. There's going to be no Sunday school. And here's the thing. When we do all of these things, you're actually going to be grateful that we get to do these things. I would have looked at that person and said, you're crazy. That's where we are right now. So the question is, is, you know, how do we make it through this kind of change, this type of disruption? And I appreciate this axiom. I think sometimes this really hits the nail on the head. Sometimes going backward is the best way to move forward. And so we're going to be looking at some RE words this morning. You know, that prefix RE means again or back. And when you think of a word like restart, you don't tend to think of a restart as losing ground. You tend to think of a restart as a fresh start. And so as we're going through all of this change, there's really two ways to look at it, isn't there? We could look at it and just 
mourn all the things that we're losing right now, or we could look at it as a restart. And how do you go through a restart? Well, that comes about by doing some other RE words, reflecting, refocusing, reengaging. And so for, for us as a church to do that, I want us to look at the book of Acts at the core, the foundational realities of what it means to be the church. And I think as we examine these, we will be reminded of what our call is in this world. Those core realities are the Messiah, the message, the mission, and then us, the members. So we're going to start with the most important, the Messiah. Because Scripture tells us that the Messiah is Jesus, and in Hebrews it says that he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we're going to pick up with the Messiah in the first three verses. Are you there with me, Acts 1? Let's pick it up. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days in speaking about the kingdom of God. So right here at the beginning of Acts, Luke is basically picking up where he left off in the gospel of Luke. He's writing to Theophilus, and he's building a case for why the church exists. Now, Theophilus was likely a wealthy patron who paid Luke to be able to do this research and write this gospel and write this book of Acts. Uh, we, we know that he was, or we think that he was wealthy, because in Luke 1.3, Luke calls him most excellent. Theophilus, and so that would probably be a term used of someone of some influence and affluence. We also think that he is a believer because the name Theophilus means friend of God. But at the same time, can't you imagine that maybe Theophilus had Luke write this work because he was struggling? You see, during this time, persecution is breaking out in this early church, and and what happens when things get difficult? Well, you go back and you start questioning everything all over again. And I think Theophilus may have been struggling in that way. And so Luke builds this case. And what does he do? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, he explained, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taking up. So right from the beginning of the book of Acts, he's saying, you got to look back at Luke and realize that Jesus is front and center. It's all about him. In that gospel, Luke showed us that Jesus is both Christ and Lord. Now, he did it a little differently than John in John's gospel. John comes out and he's like, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. But Luke doesn't go about it that way. He builds a case. He grows our realization that Jesus is both Christ and Lord, and he's done that in his gospel. So now, as we're picking up in Luke, we realize that he's Messiah, that he's the second person of the Trinity. And if Acts is all about the work of the church moving forward, then we come to realize that the only explanation for the existence of the church is Jesus. 
so that without Jesus, there's no reason to come together. Without Jesus, there's no reason to do any of the work of the church. In fact, Jesus is why the church exists. Now, some of you, when I make a statement like that, you say, duh. It's called Christianity, right? It has Christ in the name. But I'll tell you, more and more you see churches descend away from Jesus at the center into more of a, a Christless Christianity. Now, what's a, a Christless Christianity? Well, it's minimizing or marginalizing or excluding Jesus from this place of centrality, the place of preeminence in the faith. There's all kinds of different forms of this. Some, even as I was thinking about this, one of them being social Christianity, or you could call it cause Christianity. This is where Jesus kind of slides from the center and the causes, the important causes of the day the latest and greatest ideas of what matters in terms of cause, whether it would be something like social justice or caring for the poor, all important things, things that Christians should be about, but they take the place of Jesus. Another form, activity Christianity. This is where your Christian faith just becomes another activity amongst activities in your life. So you go to church on Sunday, you go to yoga classes on Friday night, and, you know, weighing between the two, it's about equal on the scale of the activities. Another form, relevant Christianity. This is the idea that Christians' most important responsibility is to be much like the culture we want to show the culture how much like them we are so that they'll accept us and we'll be able to influence them. The last time I checked, culture doesn't think you're relevant any longer as a Christian. They don't. When you get in down into the statistics of how people think about Christianity and its influence in the culture, do you know that only about 30% of Americans in this culture would identify as practicing Christians? Uh, the greater majority of them would be what we could call legacy Christians or nominal Christians, where, you know, basically faith played some part in their life at some point in time, whether they attended church or their parents attended church. It's not relevant. Even going beyond the lack of relevance, some even look at some of the just commonplace Christian moral values as extreme. Another form, political Christianity, where politics becomes more important than Christ. Every election cycle when the president's coming about, it's almost as if for some Christians this election cycle is more important than any time in history, and if this doesn't go this particular way for so-and-so to get elected in, and, and if this political uh, philosophy takes over, then Jesus somehow is going to fall off the throne and he's not going to return? Uh-uh. It's not how it works. We know how it ends. Jesus wins. So we look at the book of Acts, right, and we see the emphasis on the right place. We see a Christianity with Christ at the center. Jesus isn't minimized. He's not marginalized. He's the head of the church. He's giving commands that must be followed. 
choosing the future leaders and equipping them, verifying his resurrection, authenticating the reality that he has conquered sin and death. And what I love here, too, is that Luke does spend some time validating the hard evidence that Jesus rose again from the dead. That's important, isn't it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, then we are to be pitied above all people because we're believing a lie. Now, in the court of law, witness testimony goes a long way. Uh, The more witnesses that corroborate a story, the stronger the belief is that the story's true. We see between the gospel accounts, Acts, the other New Testament epistles, that over 500 witnesses verified the resurrection. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. Essentially, he's saying to him, look, if you're struggling with this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, I have a reference list. Some of them are alive today. You can go and have a conversation with these people. Included in that, in this same first chapter of Acts, you actually see that uh, a, a 12th apostle takes the place of Judas. And, and the core key result area that this guy had to fulfill was that he what was with Jesus from the beginning when he was baptized and saw him resurrected. So they're not building their board of directors where, you know, this person needs to have influence in these areas and this level of donor money into the ministry. No, 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 no. The only thing that mattered was that this person saw the resurrected Jesus, verified that it's real, that it's historical. That's what John writes in 1 John 1, 1, 4, what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've testified. That's what we're telling you about. We saw it. We were there. Now, going back to the court of law, imagine you're sitting in a trial, you're part of the jury, and the defendant is accused of murdering someone in the mall. The prosecution comes forward and they have no hard evidence. They can't produce a murder weapon. There are no fingerprints to tie them into the murder. So they go a different route. Instead of presenting the hard evidence, they bring in a first witness, and that witness looks to the defendant and says, yes, he was the person that murdered that other person. Second person comes in, says the same thing. More than 500 people come in and say the same thing. What will be your conclusion about the defendant? Guilty, right? Guilty. Eyewitness corroboration. That's what Christianity is built upon. It's a class all of its own. In the historical record, the Bible claims can be validated. They're true. Jesus is risen. Acts 1 tells us that he's front and center of the church. It also tells us that he has a job for the church to do. But before the church can do that job, the church is going to need some help. Where does that help come from? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, Jesus is referring back to the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. 
And John quoted those exact words when he was asked, are you the Messiah? John said, no, I'm not the Messiah because there's a Messiah who is coming whose baptism is better than my baptism. John's baptism was all about people reconnecting with God. Essentially, they were saying, I am preparing myself for whatever God's about to do. But Jesus' baptism would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would bring with it the enabling and the purifying power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this promise wasn't new with John the Baptist or Jesus. No, you go back to the Old Testament, and you see that the Holy Spirit was promised to come, like Joel 2.28, when God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, or Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. In fact, Jesus concluded Luke with that same promise. You will be clothed with power from on high. Now, when you think of a promise, you think of something that makes you excited, right? Something you look forward to. So is this promise of the coming Holy Spirit a worthy promise? You know, you can think of it like this. If someone says, I promise you that I'm going to deliver 500 pounds of chopped liver to your door, does that feel like much of a promise? No, you can keep your chopped liver. I'm not interested. Even those of you that like chopped liver, you don't want 500 pounds. You know, in John 16, 7, Jesus makes a shocking statement about the Holy Spirit. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I remember when I was first starting to walk with Jesus, it was the first time that I was opening my Bible and reading it for myself. Everything was coming secondhand up to that point, Sunday school classes, preachers. But I finally opened it up, and I was having all of these aha moments as I was reading the Bible. And this passage in particular struck me. Because when I was reading and I thought to myself, this doesn't feel like much of a promise. Wouldn't we rather have the physical presence of Jesus where he's teaching us and he's doing miracles than the, the Holy Spirit? I sometimes look at that account and think to myself, that must be how John and Peter and James and the others felt at that time. What are you saying, Jesus? You're our leader. We need you to stay with us. You, you can hear that statement and, and draw this conclusion. If the Holy Spirit comes, then Jesus goes. But that doesn't sound like much of a promise to me. And I've got to tell you, that greatly misunderstands what Jesus meant about this promise. You see, the Spirit's coming doesn't mean the loss of Jesus. Jesus is not an absentee Lord. No, the Spirit coming means the indwelling ministry of Jesus, where you are more fully connected to the person of Jesus. And not just us and not just the 12 disciples, but billions of Christians around the world. When you think about the, the Spirit's job, what is his number one responsibility? You ask five different Christians that. You say, tell me the number one key result area on the Holy Spirit's job description. They would probably give you five different answers. Uh, some of them would say, oh, you know, 
His job is mostly about power. He gives us the power to live the victorious Christian life. And so if I walk in the Spirit and I'm filled with the Spirit, then I will live in victory. And I've got to tell you, the Spirit does do that. But I don't think that's his number one job. Other of us might think that it has something to do with performance. He enhances our performance. He gives us spiritual gifts. Some have the gift of teaching. Others have the gift of intercessory prayer, so on and so forth. And while that's true, again, I don't think that's his number one job. No, I agree with J.I. Packer. He asks that same question. He says, what is the essence, heart, and core of the Spirit's work today? And he answers the question by saying that the Spirit's primary job has to do with mediating the presence of Jesus to us. So that Jesus is with us as the Christian. He says, by this I mean that the Spirit makes known the personal presence in and with the Christian in the church of the risen reigning Savior, the Jesus of history, who is the Christ of faith. J.D. Greer, another theologian and pastor, said it a little differently. He said that the Spirit's job with us is actually Jesus continued. He's still with us. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, he said, I pray that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend what is the height and depth and breadth and length and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Did you hear what the Spirit's job there is? Is to help you understand the ununderstandable, the incomprehensible, the infinite love of Christ, and to be filled with the infinite, the fullness of God. That's a big job. And it's a job only He can do. And there's an irony, too, with the Spirit, the way He operates. Because whenever the Spirit is present... You're actually not talking about him. You're not thinking about him. You're more so thinking about Jesus. Theologian Dale Brunner said it like this. He says that the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. He doesn't like the attention on himself. So you hear people say, I'm filled with the Spirit. And one of the ways we evaluate that as a Christian is, how are they talking about the Spirit? If it's more about their subjective, personal experience with the Spirit, mainly about them and focusing on themselves, we might question whether they're filled with the Spirit because the person that's filled with the Spirit is so busy exuding and talking about Jesus that you stop even thinking about the person. You're not thinking about the Holy Spirit. No, you're just enraptured with who Jesus is. You love Him more. You want to follow Him more. You want to live for Him more. Because Jesus is at the center of God's program. And the Spirit's job is to highlight that, like floodlights highlight a monument, right? You're not thinking about the floodlights when you look at the Washington Monument. You're looking at the monuments. It's beautiful. Well, let's move on. As we close this out, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. And there's a lot going on here in the first chapter of Acts. 
We're not going to focus this week on 1.8, which talks about the mission. We'll get to that in two weeks. But this morning, I want us to look at two important historical events in the life and ministry of Jesus, one that occurred in the past and one that will take place in the future, namely the ascension and the second coming. So verse 9 depicts the ascension. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them took him out of their sight. Now you can think of the ascension as Jesus fully vindicated. Okay? The ascension is Jesus fully vindicated. Remember the charges. Jesus is innocently crucified for the, on the grounds of what? Blasphemy. Remember as you're looking at Luke's gospel that there's this intensification of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And as that conflict builds, the Pharisees really try to entrap Jesus with difficult questions that they think will back him into a corner. And so he returns the favor. And he quotes to them Psalm 110 verse 1. Now in Luke 20, it explains this exchange. It says this, he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now they're baffled by the question. There's two reasons. One, a son is never greater than a father in this culture. And yet clearly the text seems to indicate that. Secondly, to sit at the right hand of God implicates that there are terms of equality here. So Jesus doesn't come out and directly say that I'm this person, but he does open the door for his lordship, his eternal reign as the son of God. And Matthew tells us that these religious leaders got it because they were left speechless. Matthew twenty-two forty-six, 46, and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. A New Testament scholar, Daryl Bach, suggests, as other scholars do, that the Jews, the early Jews, suppressed Psalm 110, 1, as a messianic psalm because they knew that that was such a strong defense for the identity of Jesus. Now, during his trial... Jesus is finally asked the question directly, and he gives a response. In Luke twenty-two sixty-seven. 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus' response becomes the grounds for his death sentence. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, so they all said to him, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The trial's a sham, but they clearly understand what he's saying. He's saying, look, I am the son of man from Daniel chapter 7 that was prophesied so long ago. My rightful place in the universe is a place with and alongside God, sharing in his presence and power and glory in church. Guess what? That's what Jesus is doing right now. 
He's at the right hand of the Father doing all of those things. How do we know this? Well, during that sham trial, the religious leaders got a vote, and they voted guilty. He's not the Son of God. He's a blasphemer. He deserves death. They also whipped up the crowds who just a couple of days before were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they voted on that day, crucify him. But God also got a vote. And God's vote was the ascension. He is my son. He has the right to rule at my side. And there on the Mount of Olives, in the presence of these disciples who were there with Jesus, he was raptured. He was raptured like Enoch from Genesis chapter 5 where the text says that he was with God and then he was no more because God took him to him. He was raptured like Elijah. He, he was raptured like the church is going to be raptured in those last days when the, the, the archangel Michael sounds the trumpet and Jesus calls the church to himself. You see, we worship a vindicated Lord who presently rules from heaven, intercedes for his church, and awaits the time when God will make his enemies his footstool. And the disciples, they stood and they watched this ascension as it was taking place. And I just love to imagine them there with their mouths gaping and drool coming out the corner of their mouth as they're looking at Jesus ascend. And two angels... They call them out of their stupor, bringing them back to attention. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We worship a vindicated Lord, but we will also join a victorious Lord Jesus when he returns. Notice that right here in Acts, Jesus is the bookends of salvation. Start to finish. His first coming and his second coming. His first coming is about dying on, our, on the cross in our place for our sins, rising again from the dead and ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father. The second coming is the vindication where he comes back victorious and he rules as the eternal Savior. Church, it's all about Jesus. All about it. So I come back to the thought I posed at the beginning. Because now is a great time to engage in some of those RE words. People in the faith are discouraged, they're distracted, they're dissentered. Well, how do we engage in that work? Well, it begins with reflecting on Jesus. Is he Lord of your life? Is he central to it all? You can even ask the same question of the church. Is he what we are about? Or are we kind of distracted and we're becoming social Christians or activity Christians or political Christians or whatever? No, it's all about him. He, he's the crucified, risen, vindicated, returning Lord. And if that's true, then it's time to refocus. It's so easy to lose focus right now. So many people robbed of their joy because we're watching the news cycle. What I got to tell you, friends, Jesus is Lord of the news cycle. You can have joy right now. And it's also time to re-engage. That's right. We don't want to become couch chair Christians or 
internet Christians. I know that some of us do need to stay home right now because of being high risk during this pandemic, but many of us could and should be in worship, giving glory to the Lord Jesus. And not only that, we should be transformed joining Thrive groups together and, and growing in the Word together and on, on mission together. It doesn't matter where you stand in this pandemic, you can still be on mission for Jesus. So i got to ask you, church, you guys ready for a restart? I am. Let's do that together as his church. Shall we pray? Well, Lord, this morning we do give you the glory, Lord Jesus, and thank you that you are the risen, ascended Lord. So many times we, we, we minimize your place in the church, and for that, Lord, I, I, I confess and I say I'm sorry. We need to make it all about you. No matter where we're in the scriptures, Lord, they point to you. No matter what we're doing in life, Lord, it has to do with your business, You've called us to be disciples, to be followers, to be your church, and we want to do that. I pray for each one here this morning that, that you would help them to flourish in their Christian faith and to not descend in discouragement, Lord. But we want to be the types of Christians who live in this day, in this age, in the way that you've called us to do. And, and I'm reminded, Lord, that no matter when we live, it's a privilege to follow and know Jesus and serve Jesus. So help us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.